Thanks be to God. Thank you for that reading. Uh, one more time, let's bow our heads and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us after journeying and trekking in this world for the past six days. Lord, we are in need of your word to refresh our weary souls, to encourage us, to remind us of who we are in your son, Jesus, so that we can not only fulfill these holy orders of being a blessing to the world, but more importantly, we could be encouraged and hopeful of the destiny that we have inherited through your son, Jesus, the inheritance of the kingdom, most importantly, the inheritance of our great God. We ask now that you would enable us to hear everything that you want us to hear in today's word, and that you would heal every area of our lives that is in need of healing, that you would bring knowledge to every area of our minds that is uh, ignorant, that you would sharpen our faith in such a way that has come dull and lukewarm. And God, now we pray that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. <sighs> I got to say something to you guys this morning. It's very important. I hate Duke University. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know that's not a godly thing to say. Will, are you here, brother? Is Will here today? Uh, I'm really, really sorry, but I have to be honest. I hate Duke University with a passion. I know, Will, if you're here today or if you hear the recording, I apologize ahead of time being an alumni of that demonic institution, literally. Um, as an alumni of Carolina, I am obligated. I have no choice in the matter. I must hate Duke. I am obligated to hate Duke University. Oh, yes, indeed. I hate that devilish of a school down in Durham, North Carolina. And yet, however, as much as I hate that school, it does not prevent me, as much as I hate to admit, that every now and then, that school does some good in this world. Oh, yes, indeed. As much as it pains me to admit, Duke sometimes does some good in this world. Case in point, a few years ago, they did a very insightful and a very illuminating study where they figured out that more and more people today are suffering from debilitating loneliness. Yes, they came out with a very extensive study where they found that more and more people in America are suffering from debilitating loneliness, which is really kind of ironic when you consider the fact that we live in such a social media age-saturated time where people can connect, reconnect, and stay connected with people that previous generations never even thought would ever be possible. And yet, that is the situation that we are in today. Now, some of you who are a little cold-hearted, more social butterflies, extroverted of you, you're like, Psh. What a bunch of weirdos. What a bunch of weaklings. Yeah, so what? People are more lonely. I'm not lonely. So this really has no relevance to me. Ah, but be careful there, okay? Because just because you may not be suffering from loneliness doesn't necessarily mean that you will not suffer because other people are lonely. Take a listen to this uh, portion of the Newsweek article that uh, talks about this Duke study. It starts off saying this, quote, there are more than 300 million of us in the United States, and sometimes it seems like we're all friends on Facebook. But the sad truth is that Americans are lonelier than ever. Between 1985 and 2004, the number of people who said there was no one with whom they discuss important matters tripled to 25%, according to Duke University researchers. Unfortunately, all this loneliness can be detrimental to our health. Social isolation has been linked to a raft of physical and mental ailments, including sleep disorders, high blood pressure, and an increased risk of depression and suicide. Studies have shown that loneliness can cause stress levels to rise and can weaken the immune system. Lonely people also tend to have less healthy lifestyles, drinking more alcohol, eating more fattening foods, and exercising less 
than those who are not lonely, end quote. We are living in a time and age where people are not only suffering from loneliness, but they're suffering from the associated symptoms that come with this loneliness, physical, emotional, psychological dysfunctions and issues that could have ramifications to not only the people suffering from the loneliness, but the people around them. Yes, loneliness, even if you don't struggle with it, could have profound ramifications to where it can tear apart the social fabric of our culture today. I mean, case in point, consider the tragic situation that happened down in Florida. Here is a kid who was disturbed, but he also happened to be lonely. Do you think it's such a coincidence that loneliness always tends to come attached to people who are very disturbed? Perhaps maybe even facilitate and cause this kind of disturbance in people's minds that cause them to act out, harming people everywhere. Loneliness is a big problem in this country that we're living in, in the time that we're living in. The question is, what is God's people, i.e. the church, called to do in light of it? We're finally finishing today our vision sermon series that we hope to do at the beginning of every new year. And if you haven't been with us so far, or if you still haven't memorized... Shame, shame, shame. Our new vision statement, here is your last chance today. Here it goes. NCF exists to bring hope to our broken world through men and women who grow up in the gospel by courageously display their allegiance to Jesus through their priorities, family, and work life, and their compassion to the poor, selflessly invest in personal relationships in order to share the gospel within their various social networks, which we call oikos, confidently engage culture with biblical wisdom in order to promote an inclusive community that flourishes Queens, New York City, the world, and the next generation. Today, we finish off by focusing in on that statement or that phrase, inclusive community. What does it mean for NCF, for the church of God's people, to be inclusive? Well, that's the question that the Apostle Paul is going to answer for us as we look at Colossians chapter 3, starting from verses 5 all the way down to verse 11. And Paul is going to help us understand this by framing it in the context of why you and I and every other person that walks on this earth need community. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, you need community for a specific reason. Number two, you need community to avoid a specific danger. And finally, you need community with a specific person. Okay? You need community for a specific reason, to avoid a specific danger, and to be with a specific person. Okay? Let's jump right in. First, you need community for a specific reason. Now, hopefully, I don't need to persuade any of you in here that life is better off when we are not alone. Right? As much as, again, I hate to admit that Duke research is something that none of us in here can really refute. We are better off as individuals. We as a society are better off collectively when we are socially connected to one another. That is established fact. That's irrefutable established fact. But with that said, however, it is also an established fact that you must be very, very careful in whom you choose to do community with. The late great African-American leader, Booker T. Washington, once said this famously, quote, associate yourself with people of good quality, for it is better to be alone than in bad company. What's he saying here? He's saying what all of you already know based on what you probably witnessed growing up, and that is when a person chooses to hang out with the quote-unquote wrong crowd. Hello? Okay. When a, when a person chooses to befriend or to be in community with the wrong groups of people, we know that it never turns out well for that person or really for that person's loved ones and family friends, right? 
Yes, indeed, life teaches us that you have to be very cautious in whom you choose to do community with. And, of course, this is something that the Bible tells us over and over, especially in the book of Proverbs. Consider this sampling, starting with this. The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. That's Proverbs 12, verse 26. Or how about this? Walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools and get into trouble. Proverbs 13, 20. Yes, indeed, life teaches us and the scripture affirms that you must be very, very careful with whom you choose to do community with. Because as much as community can protect you from the dangers of isolation, doing community with the wrong kinds of people can expose you to greater dangers that actually come from that that's even exceeding the dangers of loneliness and isolation. And that right there, folks, is why you and I need to be that is a specific reason why you and I need to be in community. We need community so that we can be shielded, protected, and distanced from what I would call the dangerous community, the wicked community. But of course, that raises the question, what exactly is this dangerous community that I'm speaking of? What is this community that we should avoid at all costs? Well, the Apostle Paul actually tells us exactly the kinds of community we should avoid. Let's take a look at our passage starting in verse 5. We read as follows. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Pause right there, your attention, please. Paul is telling us, he is describing for us the kinds of community that we need to be away from. The kinds of community that endanger us. But if you take a first-hand look at this list of characteristics, kind of the list of sins that he lists out, it's a little bit of a quandary. It's a little bit confusing. Why does he list these particular sins and not include other sins that we would consider more heinous, more dark. I mean, he doesn't mention sins like murder. He doesn't mention sins like raping and pillaging, you know, some of the more darker sins. But instead, he lists sins like evil desires, covetousness. I mean, those are bad sins. But if we're talking about this real evil, dangerous community that get people into trouble all the time, why doesn't he include those kind more heinous sins? Is he being arbitrary here? Is he not making any clear pattern of sense? No, absolutely not. And let me tell you why. If you take a careful consideration of the various sins that Paul lists here, you'll be able to see a general pattern that come out of it. And you know what that pattern is? All of these sins could be categorized in one of three ways. Sins that categorize the abuse of money, sex, and power. All of the sins that Paul lists here could be easily categorized as an example of the abuse of money, sex, and and power. For example, consider verse 5, where he lists sins like sexual immorality, impurity, and passions. These are all common biblical references that describe those who misuse or pervert our God-given sexuality, right? Or when he goes on to say evil desires and covetousness. Again, a same general term to describe those who are being ruled and overwhelmed with the sin of greed that fuels them to be covetous, that fuels them to be miserly and hoard money to themselves. Or how about skip on down to verse 8 where he mentions sins like anger, wrath, malice, evil, talk, those unique behavioral patterns that you find those 
in who abuse their power all the time or who abuse their authority, whether you're talking about the stereotypical boss who's on a power trip or maybe even a leader of the free world who is writing ridiculous but angry tweets all the time because he is so full of himself, right? See, Paul is trying to tell us something profoundly scary about the world that we live in. And you know what it is? It's basically this. In a day and age where it seems like people have nothing in common that results in them having hair-triggered, violent reactions towards one another, Paul goes on to say, and yet, what's even scary about that is that these people who usually would be at each other's throats for some reason are willing to come together, are willing to unify, are willing to commune with one another under the rubric of abusing sex, money, and power. That's what Paul is saying. In other words, Paul is saying, even though we live in a divided world where people are just hair-triggered, ready to kill each other, what's odd is you can take those very same people and for some crazy reason, they're willing to cooperate, they're willing to unify, they're willing to come together for the purposes of abusing others sexually, with money, or with power. What causes people to murder? What causes genocide? What causes people to rape and to pillage? All of those are driven by these three fundamental idolatrous sinful dynamics that we see in every culture everywhere, which is the abuse of money, sex, and power. It's these three things that are constantly being abused in our world today that have greater unifying power than any creed, any ideology, any cause, no matter how noble it is. I mean, case in point, consider the sex trafficking atrocity that we see plaguing our world today. If you just did a profile of the various people that are part of this disgusting community, you'd be amazed at how diverse the people are who are a part of this wicked community. You have poor, you have rich, you have wealthy, Right? You have unwealthy, you have educated, uneducated, white-collar, blue-collar, you have liberals, you have conservatives, you have spiritual, you have atheists. I mean, the United Nations could only wish to have the level of diversity and participation in their community that you see in some of the wicked communities that are out there. And this is just one example of the kind of dangerous community that Paul is speaking of, the kinds of community that we need to be protected why do we need community? Well, one of the specific reasons why we need community is because we need protection. We need to be sheltered. We need to be shielded, as well as our loved ones, from the communities and the various manifestation that results in them abusing money, sex, and power. Now, of course, if you're not a Christian, no doubt you will still agree with what I'm saying. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize that what I am saying is true. In fact, if you're here today investigating Christianity, you may already be part of a community that functions as a safe haven community against these kinds of various communities that are out there nearby. Whether it's an informal community of family and friends from work or at school, or whether it's a more formal gathering, whether it's being associated with a certain political party or being part of some nonprofit philanthropic cause to push back against these wicked communities that are out there today. Many of you are part of safe haven communities, and if you are, that's wonderful. It's great. It's commendable. And yet, Paul will go on to say that as wonderful as these alternative safe haven communities are, he's going to tell us in just a moment, they don't go far enough. As great as they are, they're not as great as they could be. Why? Because embedded within all of them is a specific danger that you also must avoid at all costs. As much as you try to avoid communities that abuse sex, money, and power. But what is that specific danger? Well, 
Let me go to my next point to explain, which is you need community that avoids a specific danger. Let's have our passage up for just a moment. Let's skip all the way down to the last verse, verse 11, where it reads this. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, when most people read this verse, they think that what Paul is essentially saying is that God shows no partiality, as we just recited in the Catechism, that he shows no favoritism to any group of people, any tribe, any language group, right? To where no one could ever boast and say, oh, I'm the favorite child of God. God loves me more than he loves you, people. Yeah, yeah, Paul is saying, no, no, no. You can't do that. At least that's what most people think, and most people are right. That is partially what Paul is saying. God loves all equally. He is the Savior of all. He is the Christ for all. Yes, but he's saying so much more than that, and let me tell you why. If you look at these various groups of people that he is describing, these categories of people, you'll realize that he's actually describing criteria that people use to determine the kinds of communities that they will either join or create. Paul is describing various social criterias that we use today to determine the kinds of community that we want to be a part of. And those criteria are as follows. Number one, ethnicity. Number two, religious practices slash experiences. Number three, cultural ideology. And number four, status. These are the four criteria that are still used today to determine the kinds of community that people will be a part of. So let's go through them, beginning with ethnicity, which is what Paul references with this idea of Jew and Greek. Now, for those of you who are not aware, Paul was a Jew. He was a prominent Jew. He was a rabbi. It was an order of the Pharisees, according to the book of Galatians. Okay? So we understand why Paul, when he's giving an example of ethnicity, why he puts down Jew. But the question is, out of all the various ethnicities that he could have named, why does he name Greek? Why does he put down the ethnic of Greeks in this example of ethnicity? Well, <clears throat> just a little trivia if you weren't aware. Back during Paul's day, Greeks were notorious into thinking that they were the best ethnicity out there. Greeks had this mindset that they were the supreme race, that they were the supreme ethnicity, right? That was the mindset in the ancient world. And if the movie Big Fat Greek Wedding is an accurate portrayal of the modern Greek mindset, it seems like not much has changed. You guys seen that movie, Big Fat Greek Wedding? Right? Remember the father, <clears throat> what he says to his daughter, Tula, at one scene in the movie? He says this, Tula, there are two kinds of people, Greeks, and everyone else who wish they were Greek, right? Remember him saying that? Now, all kidding aside, you can't really let the Greeks take the full blame of the sin of ethnocentrism. I'm sorry, ethno-what? Ethnocentrism. Don't know it? Here's a definition. Ethnocentrism, the belief in the inherent superiority of one's own ethnic group or culture. Oh, that ethnocentrism, yes. Yeah, I'm guilty of that. Of course you are. We all are. Every single one of us are when you consider the crazy, violent, dangerous communities that are out there. One of the criteria that people use all the time everywhere is ethnicity to establish the foundation of the community they, they build. Why? What's the underlying assumption of many ethnic communities, if not all of them? We take care of our own. We make sure our own kind are not being taken advantage of, not being abused by the man or the powers of be. Yes, indeed, many ethnic communities are driven with the charter of wanting to make sure that their members are protected by those who would seek to abuse them with the abuse of sex, money, and power, especially when it comes to power. 
Oh yes. People look to ethnic communities as a way, as a safe haven community against the dangerous communities that are out there. Now, of course, ethnic communities are not the only one that do this. There are other kinds of community, evidenced by the fact that Paul goes on to describe other criteria for communities that try to do the same thing, such as circumcised and uncircumcised. Come again? Pastor John, what does that mean? <laughs> circumcised and uncircumcised. What in the world is Paul trying to get at? Well, in order for me to explain, I have to do a little bit of Bible background. So please bear with me. Try not to stay asleep. I know it's hot in here for some reason. So please bear with me. I'll do my best to keep you awake. New Testament scholars tell us that the reason why Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church is because false teachers infiltrated this church and they were basically trying to create a community that was driven by false religious practices and false religious experience, okay? In other words, these false teachers were coming in and they were trying to pervert and corrupt the community and create another breed of it by forcing and imposing false religious beliefs and false religious experiences and Practices. These false experiences and practices have been dubbed as the Colossian heresy. The Colossian heresy. And listen to how one Bible teacher by the name of David Panfield, how he describes what the Colossian heresy was about. He said this, quote, The nature of this heresy was apparently a religious system that combined elements of Hellenistic Greek speculation, Jewish legalism, and Oriental mysticism. It involved a low view of the body. It stressed upon the importance of circumcision, dietary regulations, and ritual observance, together with its worship of angels and preoccupations with what? Mystical experiences. So it turns out, these heretics were coming in and they were trying to create a community that's centered on transcendental or mystical experiences, strict regimental living like diets, right, and regulated living, as well as rituals like physical altercations of the body like circumcision, okay? Now, some of you are hearing that, like, well, Pastor, are you actually going to stand there and say that people still use this as a criteria today? I mean, it makes sense that during Paul's day where people were overly religious, overly spiritual, but surely you're not saying that people create communities like this anymore. People don't use religious experiences or practices as a criteria to build community now, right? Oh, no. Let me ask you, why do troubled teenagers congregate together and they do things to their body as if they don't care what happens to it by ingesting drugs, alcohol, getting involved with risky sexual behaviors, all for the sake of having some sort of transcendent mystical experience that brings them a sense of family bond with one another? Huh? Why do troubled youths who grow up in very bad neighborhoods join gangs that require them to do things to their bodies, to alter their bodies, right? Like tattoos or scars to show that they belong. Why do prisoners who are trying to reform themselves, sometimes in prison, will convert to a certain religion that require them to have strict dietary regulations and strict dietary living? All of these communities that I'm just describing to you are real communities that are still being built today. And you know what they all have in common? Escape. Escape. Escape from what? They're trying to escape the trauma and the scarring that they've received from the abuse they got from others in the categories of the abuse of sex, money, and power. The point? The Colossian heresy is alive and well, folks. And it really is the bedrock of so many communities today. Just because a certain community may not label their practices, their experiences that justify you belonging to the community as religious does not mean it's not religious. Oh, yes, indeed. This is a very religious thing that we are talking about. And those communities in particular are very, very religious. Now, let's move on to our third criteria that Paul describes. 
and that is what is known as cultural ideology, which is his reference to barbarian and Scythian. Now, most of us in here kind of know what a barbarian is, but hardly any of us know what a Scythian is. What in the world is a Scythian? Anyone know what a Scythian is? I do, but do you? <laughs> right? Scythian, it turns out, I actually didn't know before the sermon, so don't, don't think I'm super smart, even though, no, no, I'm not. But a Scythian, apparently, was the worst kind of barbarians. They were considered the bottom of the totem pole of barbarism in the ancient world. They were considered the worst of the worst kinds of barbarians. Hey, while we're talking about barbarians, do you guys know why people in the ancient world were labeled as barbaric? Why they were called barbarians? The reason why they were called barbarians is because outsiders saw these people as being uncivilized, unintelligible, uneducated, evidenced by the fact that when they talked, they sounded like savage animals that went like, bar, 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 right? When Greeks first encountered these weird people whose language they did not recognize, to them it just sounded like, bar, bar, bar. Who are these bar, bar people? What should we call them? Let's call them barbarians. That's really how they got their name. Because in their minds, they were unintelligent, backward-minded, basically ancient forms of backward hicks, okay? Uncivilized, uneducated, undignified. And here's the question. What do you do when you have a bunch of barbarians commingling with a bunch of Greeks? If you just remember what I just said, that Greeks thought that they were superior, that they were the most evolved, the most civilized, the most pure, and the most intelligent civilization. You know what you get? Hellenization. You know what Hellenization was? Hellenization was a cultural movement where Greeks tried to spread their cultural ideology to the known world. They spread things like their political views, their philosophical views, their perspectives on everything, politics, philosophy, perspectives. Perspective of what? Perspective of family life, perspective of political life, right? One of the things that you may not realize is that the Greeks back then, because they were so full of themselves, really felt this self-righteous responsibility. You know what that responsibility was? We Greeks, we are so superior, we must take on the responsibility of making sure we free these barbaric civilizations from their barbarism. We must free them from their ignorance. We must free them from their backward traditions and their backward ways of thinking. Greeks thought that they were liberators, or they thought they were liberals. They were people who felt that they were so evolved and so knowledgeable that it was up to them to make sure that they enlightened everyone and that they really imposed, because by imposing, what they're really doing is freeing these people from their backward way of thinking, right? Their idiotic way of thinking, their primitive way of thinking. Sound familiar? Do we have communities that are like this, that are driven and centered by cultural ideology where they feel it's their God-given duty? Well, most of them are atheistic. Their, their duty to make sure that you are enlightened, that you understand, even pressured to accept their understanding of certain perspectives, whether it's the perspective of politics, the perspective of identity, the perspective of homosexuality, the perspective of gender. Yes, indeed, we have communities today that make cultural ideology the bedrock and therefore the purpose in which, why they exist, to push back against communities that they think, that they think abuse sex, money, and power. How interesting, right? 
Now let's move on to the final criteria of slave and free. And really, this is going to be the quickest criteria to go through because in reality, this is not a separate criteria, but in reality, it's the ultimate criteria that the other three that I just mentioned are trying to shoot for. The criteria of ethnicity, religious practices slash experiences, and cultural ideology are all trying to reach this, this uh, criteria of status represented by slave and free. Let me explain why. In the ancient world, there was no greater victim of the abuse of sex, money, and power than the slave. In the ancient world, if you were a slave, you were gonna be abused sexually with money and with power, okay? Which means the last person you wanted to be was a slave, <coughs> excuse me, in the ancient world. They were the ones who were the greatest victims of those kinds of abuses, which also means the person who was most protected and most <coughs> avoiding of these abuses was the opposite of a slave, which is who? The non-slave, the free person. Right? The one who had status, that was the free person. Slaves had no status, hence the greatest victim of abuse. And so all of these communities that Paul has just referenced, the ethnic community, the religious practice community, the cultural ideological community, or the liberal community, all of it is trying to reach the same goal of what status provides, the experiences of the free person someone who is free from the abuse, someone who could avoid the dangers of those who would abuse sex, money, and power. That's all what it was all about. Ethnicity, religious practice, experience, cultural, they all wanted to get that status that protected their community and their members from those kinds of abuses. And on the surface, that sounds wonderful, it sounds commendable, but Paul says, no, but be careful. Because as wonderful and commendable these communities are and what they're trying to do there is a specific danger embedded in them. And the question is, what is this danger? Go to our passage again. Let's focus in on verse 9. What does Paul say there? He says this. Do, we have, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices. Do not lie to one another. According to Paul, all of these safe haven communities, as commendable as they are, have a nasty habit, have a nasty tendency of causing its members to lie to one another, to be deceptive towards one another, collectively to lie to itself. And the question is, what lie are we talking about here? What is this lie that these commendable, safe human communities do to its members and within itself? The answer, we don't need Jesus. The lie that these safe haven communities, these commendable communities cause is this notion that they don't need Jesus. And to explain what I mean, let me go to my final point. You need community with a specific person. And focus again on verse 11, if we can have verse 11. Let's read it again, but focus on the second half of verse 11. What does he say? <clears throat> Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Zero in on that phrase, but Christ is all. What is Paul saying? He's saying a lot of things. But you know one particular thing he's saying there? He's saying Jesus Christ is the Savior of all. Jesus Christ is the Savior of all. He's not just the Savior of the Greeks. He's the Savior of the barbarians. He's not just the Savior of, you know, the, the educated. He's also the Savior of the uneducated. Now, here's the thing. If Christ is the Savior of all, doesn't that presume that all need to be saved? And if all need to be saved, doesn't that also further mean that all are wicked, disgusting, perverted, evil sinners that need to be saved by Christ? Here's the question. 
Why would Paul need to include this idea that everyone is an evil, wicked sinner in this discussion of creating safe haven communities that are protecting against communities that would abuse these members from the abuse of sex, money, and power? Why? Paul is trying to challenge the dangerous assumption that many of these safe haven communities have, and it's the assumption that says, we are nothing like them. I am not like those people. We are so different. We could never be like them. We would never commit the kinds of atrocity that those people over there commit. Abuse, sex, money, and power, we don't do that. We're protecting our people from that very thing. We would never do such things. That is the danger. That's the same thing as saying, I don't need Jesus, right? When we create safe haven communities against the community that would abuse sex, money, and power, you are in danger of assuming that you are so categorically different that you're not capable of those same atrocities that are out there that you're trying to protect your members from. But consider what Paul says from verses 5 to 7. Pay particular attention to what he says at the end of verse 7. What does he say? Starting in verse 5, we read, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. See what he just said? When he said in verse 7, in which you at once walked in them, or as another translation puts it, in which how you used to live your life. What's Paul's point? Paul's point is this. Do not make the mistake of falling into the specific danger that assumes you are nothing like the dangerous community that abuses sex, money, and power. Because apart from Jesus, you are no different. Let me say that again. Do not make the mistake of falling into the specific danger that assumes that you're nothing like the dangerous community out there that abuses sex, money, and power. Because apart from Jesus, you are no different. Every single one of us in here are capable of abusing sex, money, and power. And the only thing that's going to protect us from committing those sins against anybody else is not our ethnicity. It's not our religious practices or experiences. It's not going to be our cultural ideology, our political viewpoints. The only thing that will protect us from committing these kinds of atrocities and creating a community that doesn't commit those atrocities is Jesus and Jesus alone. Do you get that? It is only through Jesus, the criteria of the gospel, that will create a true community that is a safe haven against the community that is out there. A community that any of us in here can become a member of apart from the work of Jesus, apart from the work of the gospel. Which means what? It means this. The ultimate criteria that should define this community here at NCF, and really any church, should not be our ethnicity. It should not be certain religious practices or experiences that we elevate and it should definitely not be our cultural ideology like our political views or our views of gender or our views of power. The only thing that should bind us more than any other criteria to what we call each other brother, sister, is Christ and Christ alone. Now, with that said, the inevitable question as we look around is, uh, Pastor, are we guilty of committing this sin? Because look around, uh, I can see a lot of yellow faces we seem to be one primary ethnicity here. Are we guilty of committing sin? Maybe, maybe not. The key is what happens 
when a non-yellow person walks through these doors. But they have the same Christ that you have. That's the question. Or maybe another question is, when you look at two people who you could befriend, two people who you can build community with, someone who shares the same skin color, someone who shares the same political view, versus someone who does not have your skin color, who doesn't have your political views, but yet has your Christ, who do you feel a stronger affinity towards? When we say in our vision statement that we want to be an inclusive community, what we are saying is that we want to be welcoming to all who share not our skin color, not our cultural views, not even our particular religious experiences, but who share our commitment to the gospel. Now what that practically means is we want to welcome anyone and everyone who recognizes that they are a sinner. Just like you. Just like me. Just like all of us. The only thing that you need to come and be a part of one of us is to say, I need Christ. I need Jesus. I need Christ to be my all and in all. Here's the question, NCF. Do you agree with that? But more importantly, when the time comes, if the opportunity arises, are you actually willing to live it out? This time, I want to just kind of encourage you to try and apply today's message with some practical next steps. Something for you to seriously consider as we try to live out this call of being an inclusive community. And number one, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, but today's message might have stirred in you to the point where you want to know more or even more significantly if you want Christ in your life. If you're ready to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, which involves you recognizing God as your creator, recognizing that you were originally called upon to live with all eternity with him, that you were meant to live under his lordship, under his kingship, to where you're willing to give up all of those sins that have robbed your relationship with him, and you're willing to turn to Jesus as your substitute savior, knowing that he died for all your past, present, and future sins. If that is you, pray to the Lord and accept him now. And come talk to me and Pastor James. We would love to help you go to your next steps of your faith journey. Or if you're more intrigued, We will give you resources that you need to keep pursuing this goal. Number two, for those of you who are Christians, I'd like to challenge you in a unique way. Think about another Christian that you have in your oikos who doesn't look like you, who doesn't necessarily think like you culturally. Would you consider spending some time together in the next few weeks? Take them out to coffee. Have a meal with them. Pray for them. Right? And maybe, just maybe, see if God has brought this person into your oikos for the very purposes of living out this vision of being an inclusive community. Would you seriously consider cultivating the ability to relate to people where the only thing that you have to lean on of what brings you together is not your skin color, it's not your political views, it's not even the kinds of experiences that you've had with God, but it's based on your commitment to the gospel. Would you consider doing that? Number three. Pray with your Oikos group members for an opportunity to fight back against the dangerous community that is out there. You know, there are so many great organizations, World Vision, World Harvest, Restore, who have done such amazing things. Christian organizations that are trying to create safe haven communities for the people of God to gather around and to live out this call of providing an alternate community that protects and fights back against the communities that commit so much atrocity. IJM is another one of those. 
Would you consider, with your workers group, coming up with some practical ways of how you can partner with them or even get involved with these organizations, okay? That's it. I thought there were four. There's only three. So let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would help us to really take to heart today's message. Father, it is a message that might make us very uncomfortable. It is a message that we need to hear. Father, we see what is out there in the world. Now we know that we need community to fight against it. But Lord, as we try to build a safe haven community where its members are free from the terror of the abuse of sex, money, and power, God, please, please help us to avoid the specific danger of lying to ourselves, of creating a deceptive community that thinks that we are so beyond, that we are so nothing like the community that we're trying to work against. Father, help us to see that you are the savior of all. You are all and for all. And so God, help us to live that out by creating a community that centers on only on you, Jesus. For that is the kind of community that can really meet the breadth of diversity that we see in those wicked communities out there. It is only in the church of God where every tribe, nation, and tongue, every political viewpoint, every cultural ideology can be captured and put under the common lordship of Jesus. And so, God, would you help us to become a community that manifests that vision, that we would be a community that not necessarily is multi-ethnic, but a community that is centered on the gospel. Help us to live that out by your power and grace. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.